Welcome to Women Leading the Way Radio Show, where each time you'll hear from successful women CEOs, executives, and professionals, where we'll discover how they do what they do to be successful in business. We'll be interviewing women who have overcome big challenges, women who have incredible stories of lessons learned in dealing with adversity. We'll even interview women who have started and grown successful organizations and women who are C-level executives with unique talents and positions. Our goal is to bring successful businesswomen together to share how they're leading the way in business today. Good afternoon and welcome to Women Lead Radio, brought to you by Connected Women of Influence. I'm Eileen Gaffin, your host of Reputation and Influence, and I've got a most interesting topic for you today. It's the shocking story of a businesswoman who had built her reputation and influence and she turned out to be a fraud. Our guest today is Barbara Bree. She knows a lot about this Ponzi schemer. Barbara is the co-author of a new book called I Did It, the largest woman-led Ponzi scheme in U.S. history. Gina Champion Kane. She told her story to Neil Centuria and our guest today, Barbara Bree. Good afternoon, Barbara. Good afternoon, Eileen. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, my gosh. You're so welcome. I read the book, and what a story. I can't wait to get into it. And I know you're going to tell us all about what Gina champion Kane did and what led up to it, but let's, let's start at ground level. What is a Ponzi scheme? Good question. Well, first of all, it's named after a man named uh, Charles Ponzi, who back in the 1920s, uh, took money from investors and, and, and at the beginning legitimately uh, invested the money and then soon began diverting new investor money to make payments to earlier investors and to himself. Uh, and so this type of scheme where you use some of the early investor money to pay off later investors and you also divert some of it to yourself has been known as a Ponzi scheme ever since then. Oh, my. So now you are an executive, you've run companies, you've served in public life, you, you have quite an impressive background. So why did you write this book? Did you know Gina from before or how this come about? So my husband and I knew Gina very superficially and we were never invited to invest in the Ponzi scheme, nor did we even know that it existed until we read uh, in the newspaper that she had uh, pled guilty. Uh, so um, my husband first met her in the 1990s because he was a real estate developer at the time, and she was in real estate development also. Uh, then you know she had restaurants in San Diego that we ate at, and we knew her uh, to say hello to. And about six months after, so it was August, September 2019, that the scheme unraveled and the SEC shut her down and brought in a receiver, and, uh, but she didn't go to prison right away because she was cooperating with uh, federal officials. And about six months later, uh, she read a column that my husband, Neil Centuria, wrote for the Union Tribune. He writes a, a weekly column on entrepreneurship. And she liked his column. Uh, they got together for coughing, and eventually uh, she agreed to share his, her story with him, her side of the story, I will say. Yeah, it's definitely her side of the story. She does tell her own story, and she thinks very highly of herself. I must say. <laughs> um, 
this, for those listening around the world, this takes place in San Diego, California, Southern California. And how, did, how exactly did her Ponzi scheme work? What did she do? So Gina was um, a, a real estate developer. And uh, 2008 to 2010, you know, the world fell apart in the real estate market. And she was trying to get back on her feet, and she found um, a small property in the Pacific Beach area of San Diego, near, near the beach, a uh, nice beach community. And it was a restaurant and with a little bit of property. And her plan was to develop some apartments on the property. But the local community planning group said they wanted the restaurant to remain. And so uh, she thought, okay, I'm going to go into the restaurant business. And she got an SBA loan to buy the building. Uh, then she had to raise outside money to be able to renovate the building. And the restaurant opened and she was short $600,000 to pay off the contractors and to finish uh, the tenant improvements. And earlier, she, and, and, the, and she couldn't find invest, more investment money uh, to mm-hmm. pay for this. And earlier, she had done six legal liquor license loans. So she had done loans to people who were buying a bar or a restaurant and having a liquor license transferred to them, and they needed to put into escrow uh, the amount of money. Uh, They needed to show the alcohol beverage control that they had the money in escrow to be able to close the transaction. And she had done six legal loans helping people with this and had brought in a few friends to help with making the loans, and they'd all been paid off. So here she is in January, I think it's 2012, and she can't raise the money to finish the restaurant, and so she literally created six sort of fictitious uh, liquor license loans and then raised, um, you know, $600,000. They, they reach $100,000 to finish off uh, the improvements in the restaurant. And that's how it started. So was there something about this that made it different than other, I don't know, it didn't, it didn't exactly start as a, as a scheme, what what made this different? So I think when she did the illegal loans, that was definitely. I, I think she thought in her mind, six hundred thousand, I can pay it off from the cash flow of the restaurant. My husband and I can refinance our house. But she kept going. Uh, people liked the amount of interest they were earning. You know, eight to eight percent and up. Uh, and so she kept going because she had this vision of wanting to build an empire. Uh, and eventually, you know, she had you know, many restaurants. She had some retail stores. She had many vacation rentals. She had several hundred employees. And, but all these businesses were losing money. She wasn't such a great businesswoman. They were losing money. And of the, uh, she, raised almost four, she raised about $380 million. It lasted for seven years. That's actually a very long time for a Ponzi scheme to last. So it lasted seven years because during that time, you're using some of the money to pay off prior money, you know, prior investors. And she took between 50 and $60 million, uh, to fund uh, her businesses. When it all fell apart, there was about $170 million outstanding to investors. And one of the things that's unusual about this Ponzi scheme is that the investors are going to get back about 95% of their money, and that is extraordinary. 
And why that is happening is because the liquor license escrows were held by Chicago Title, which is a multi-billion, owned by Fidelity National, which is a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company. And they have made settlements in several uh, lawsuits uh, to pay off investors. It's over $130 million so far. Uh, more is likely coming. And also the receiver has been able to recover some money by selling assets. So that makes yeah. this Ponzi scheme extraordinary. She worked with very trustworthy title company. People knew them. They, they thought they could trust the process. Yeah, they, they, they put the money in thinking it was only going to be released when a liquor license loan was actually funded. They didn't understand that Chicago Title was releasing money to Gina whenever she asked for it. She had some interesting partners in this. Well, hold on. I've got a lot more questions for you, and we want to hear how this uh, turns out and how it all um, came to be with a lot of other people besides just Gina Champion King. So we are going to take a break, uh, and now we're going to take a quick moment to recognize one of our sponsors and partners. Women Lead Radio is brought to you today by Connected Women of Influence and our partner, National University. National University is proud to be one of the largest private nonprofit universities founded in 1971. The National University mission is to provide accessible, achievable, higher education to adult learners. Today, National University educates students from across the U.S. and around the globe with over 170,000 alumni worldwide. Thank you for your support, National University, and to all of our sponsors and partners. Okay, we're back to Reputation Influence, and with us today is Barbara Bree, co-author of the new book, I Did It. And she was just telling us about other companies and people that were involved in making this criminal enterprise work. And it was pretty surprising to know that, um, you know, somebody like Gina champion Kane had really made a name for herself in Southern California and in San Diego. She came across as a very trustworthy business person, a leader, a woman leader in our community. She's working with Chicago Title, um, and she's finding investors and bundlers. And so this doesn't happen in a vacuum. Who were these enablers that helped her to get these deals done? Yeah, so you mentioned the word bundler, Eileen, and that's a very important word. Uh, Gina knew very few of the investors herself. Uh, there were several men, and actually it was mostly men, who found the other investors. So she didn't know them personally. Kim Peterson, uh, a San Diego real estate developer, was one of the major bundlers who found individuals to invest. And remember, this was, I mean, even to the investors, it was, it was considered, uh, you had to be uh, what's called um, oh, an accredited investor which meant you have over a certain net worth or over a certain annual income that you understand that you are taking a risk when you invest in something like this. So she had bundlers, including Kim Peterson and others, finding money for her. She had Ovation Finance, a hedge fund based out of Texas that invested a significant amount of money. She had banks that were making loans to Kim Peterson that he could then put into this. 
uh, and some of them were uh, San Diego banks. Yeah, and what I thought was interesting about the approach, uh, it, it seemed like it was pretty risk-free. There was high-end payout up to 18% interest um, that, I guess, was split among uh, the different investors. Or if the loan, the fake loan, if the loan didn't fund, um, and then they would get their money. If I'm saying that right, then yeah, they no, would get their right. investment so theoretically, back. The so liquor there was license, no loss. Right. Yeah, figure, yeah, theoretically, you'd get your principal back. If the liquor license loan didn't fund, of course, you wouldn't get any interest. But what was interesting, in seven years, there were no uh, – all the, all the licenses funded. You'd think at some point somebody would have said, gee, why – you'd think that one or two of these, you know, they wouldn't fund, that they'd get turned down by the ABC for some reason or another. That's and you also asked about – yeah. So there yeah, were other – there were other enablers, so there were um, – people who worked at Chicago Title. Uh, there have been no further indictments. Only Gina and her CFO, Crispin Torres, uh, were indicted uh, and both are currently in prison. Uh, but, and there, but there were people at Chicago Title who allowed this to go on, but there have been no uh, further criminal indictments. Yeah, I thought, I thought the way she carried this out was fascinating. Um, she would go online and look up no she didn't even I, she didn't even have a, a particular liquor license in mind that she was going to uh, use as the one that you should invest in she would just type in numbers and if one came up that was you know uh, kind of a, a, a liquor license that had expired and not in use that's what she would that's what she would sell to investors and the thing that was interesting was that nobody nobody like did their homework and looked this up until the very end. So that's a lot of people who didn't do their due diligence. Yes, right? and that's, that's absolutely true. And that's one, you know, people ask Neil and me why we wrote the book. And one of the reasons we wrote the book is to give insights into how people can make a wrong path in their life and then how difficult it can be to turn it around. And Gina went down the wrong path. And second, to sort of have investors think twice and ask questions before making investments. So those are, those so are two of And also I should point out, Gina makes no money be, yeah. from this book. So Gina makes nothing. So. Oh, that's good to point out. Yeah. Um, that's important. Um, what questions should people ask so they're not taken advantage of? Well, it's it, so... You know, and this is in the book. There was a bank uh, where um, Kim Peterson was trying to get a line of credit to put the money into the liquor license loans, and they actually did some due diligence and uh, didn't make the loan. And that's in the book. It's Tory Pines Bank. So they did. And then we also do name uh, who we believe is the whistleblower in the book. Uh, someone who actually did due diligence, like looked up all the numbers. You know, he, she, he had a list of numbers. A friend of his was thinking of investing and had, you know, numbers and information on specific loans, and this person actually looked up all of this information and realized uh, it was kind of bogus. Yeah, even Gina says in her own story she couldn't believe that no one else did that except this one person. Yeah. Because everyone had access to the information. But yeah. no one, no one does, <laughs> right. including three banks. 
Yes, <laughs> it's true. Wow. So why do you think, because as you said, Gina was doing really well in building an empire, but why do you think she created the Ponzi scheme? And you spoke a little bit about this. Well, she wasn't doing well in building an empire. Her empire was losing money. She was using the the proceeds of the Ponzi scheme to pay her employees. In in a sense, she kept opening money-losing business after money-losing business. And one of the, and so Neil, I, I never interviewed her directly. Neil interviewed her directly. I read all the transcripts, and then once she was in prison, uh, we were writing the book. Um, I emailed her uh, when I had questions that you know I needed information to fill in certain things, and she would she has email access, so she would answer me. Um, but you know she. These businesses didn't make money. And one of the questions we asked her that she never really answered, would you have been satisfied with one restaurant, the patio on Lamont, and a few vacation rentals? If she had Mm -hmm. stopped there, she would have been fine. Mm -hmm. So why? And she's never answered to my satisfaction why she had this grandiose thing. And then she was delusional that she could bundle it all together and take it public and pay back the investors. Um, so I never got an answer that has satisfied me. Mm-hmm. And, when, and, you know, when I, when I used those words and told you about building an empire or successfully building an empire, to the outside world, because I read a lot of stories about her <laughs> over the years. She had a good publicist. She was getting herself in the news. She was out there at all the... You know, she had important board positions. Mm-hmm. And um, so to the outside world, her reputation and her influence was all positive, I thought. Yes, um, no, to the outside but world. But until, until yeah. hearing this story and this all came to light, wow. Yeah, to the outside world until August 2019, she looked like, like she looked very successful. And it was May of 2019 when she got the subpoena from the SEC and What's interesting is be, so she gets the subpoena from the SEC. Kim Peterson gets it also. Chicago Title also got it, but apparently it, it seems that it got lost in somebody's drawer and they didn't really know till September that they'd gotten it. Um, during that three-month period, she raised, I think it was another $20 million, knowing that she's going to have to be talking to the SEC in a few months. Wow. That's, yeah, that's chutzpah. Yeah. <laughs> You've told us that she's in prison. What was her, what was uh, the, I mean, she, she didn't have a trial. Did she, That's right. She, she did. To... Yes, yeah, she pled guilty. And she did okay. cooperate with uh, federal officials. And uh, she was sentenced uh, about a year and a half ago uh, to 15 years in prison. Uh, she, there were three counts against her, and uh, the judge gave her the maximum on each count. Uh, and was actually quite upset that he couldn't give her more. But she had uh, essentially, he said she'd essentially plea bargain to only these three counts, uh, and so he was going to give her the max. The U.S. attorney actually had recommended 10 to 11 years uh, because of the cooperation that she had given them. Mm. But the judge gave her 15, and so she's... Uh, a little over a year and a half into serving her sentence, uh, and she's at a prison outside of Oakland uh, in Dublin, California, and she's actually at a camp. 
which is very, very minimum security, where literally you could walk off. There's no fence around it. That's interesting. White yes. collar crime. Yeah, so she's, and, and um, actually when you get sentenced to over 10 years, you don't usually get sent to a camp. Uh, most of the women at Dublin, the Dublin camp, are there for a few months to a few years. Uh, but apparently her behavior was so good in the, so she got, you know, sentenced, and they, you know, take her out of the courtroom in the back, you know, out through a back door, and then she's taken to um, MCC in downtown San Diego, and then she's transferred to this prison and that prison. I mean, it took a few months before she got to Dublin, and apparently her behavior was very good during that time, so they, they sent her to Dublin. And so what's her day-to-day life? You mentioned she has email. What's her day-to-day life like now? So she's gotten very engaged there with helping other women. She uh, started out by helping in the education department, working with women, helping them to get their high school degree. Uh, She teaches in the culinary arts program. Uh, She uh, got her paralegal. so she and the other thing she's involved with, and if anyone wants to Google Dublin and sexual harassment, um, a lot of stories will come up, mostly from the Northern California uh, press. Um, she, uh, there have been allegations of the guards uh, sexually harassing the women, and, and actually, some of the senior people at Dublin have been uh, replaced. And she's been helpful with organizing uh, the women. Uh, Form, uh, Congresswoman Jackie Spear has visited the prison once, and Gina helped to organize that because she can write letters too. So she, she has limited email uh, access, but she can write letters to people. And so she's been, I think, um, up trying to be a positive force uh, to help mm-hmm. the other women in prison. Do you expect to see more prosecutions in this case? I, I, you know, we we don't know. We've asked the U.S. attorney, and they don't answer us, so we have no idea. Uh huh. Because I think you said there's only been two. Yeah. So the date. The, yeah. So Gina's CFO, Crispin Torres, who was really just a controller, and you know, she he, you know, she would say, you know, Chris, I need you know a million dollars from the account at Chicago Title to make payroll, and and I and probably at some point he understood that you know, this was not legitimate money. Uh, we never mm-hmm. talked to him directly. We went, we did go to his sentencing, which was a week before Gina's. And there the U.S. attorney had recommended mostly home confinement. Uh, this is a man who's um, got Parkinson's and I think diabetes. He's in his 50s. He, he needed the health insurance that he got through Gina. Uh, he's gay and he'd recently married his long-term partner. And the... Um, I said the U.S. attorney, you know, recommended minimal sentencing and mostly home confinement, and the judge gave him four years. Hmm. Well, I'm sure people are going to want to learn more about the book, or um, I highly encourage them to read it. It's a fascinating story uh, and how so many people could be duped, um, $400 million crime. Um, what is, I know they can go to Amazon and other booksellers, but you do have a website for the book, correct? Yes, it's I did it uh, dash. I did it. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. It's got I did it. If you Google I did it, uh, Barbara Bree, uh, <laughs> it will come up. <laughs> oh, I found it, Barbara. I did it hyphen book dot com. Yes, that's it. I found it. 
Okay. And it's also on the um, website for this podcast. There's a link to it as well. So be sure to look there. Uh, I've got one final question for you. Do you, do you think that um, Gina Champion-Kane is remorseful or sorry about doing this? Yes, I really do believe she is remorseful. Um, you know, she was brought up in a nice, you know, middle, upper middle class family in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, she went to the University of Michigan. You know, she graduated. She moved to San Diego to go to law school but ended up uh, getting an MBA here instead at the University of San Diego. And I believe she, I believe she is very sorry for what she did and I think that's a lesson for all of us that she, she started down the wrong path. You know, no excuses. She started down the wrong path. And then for whatever reason, she couldn't stop. And it was almost like she was an addict who had to have the next business. And the book details, you know, some of the businesses that she purchased along the way and the things that she started. It's like she couldn't stop. It was like she was an, an addict. That's a great way to describe her behavior and her situation. Well, um, I hope everyone will go out and get your book. It's a fascinating read. I uh, wouldn't be surprised at all if it becomes a movie or something. Um, the Largest Woman-Run Ponzi Scheme in American History. The book is called I Did It. Gina Champion-Kane tells her story to Neil Centuria and Barbara Bree. And that's our show today. Thank you, Barbara, for joining us. Thank you, Eileen. Great. Uh, I want a special thanks to all of our listeners, both in the U.S. and around the world, as we are an international show. After our show today, you can listen to Women Lead Radio on all subscription podcasts, including Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google, and iHeartRadio. We are expanding quickly to a daily radio show and podcast so for now, we'll be back again for another live Women Lead Radio show on Mondays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time. It's been my sincere pleasure to be your host today. Remember, your reputation is our business. Women Leading the Way is produced by Connected Women of Influence, the premier private membership organization where like-focused, business-to-business, executive and professional women connect collaborate and cultivate a vast network of high-level affiliations, resources, and professional relationships. For more information about Connected Women of Influence, please visit our website at connectedwomenofinfluence.com.